Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, flying solo this week. The word legend is thrown around pretty indiscriminately these days, but on Norman Lear, it fits. There would be no scripted television as we know it if Lear, now 94, hadn't burst onto the national scene in a big way back in 1971 when his sitcom All in the Family debuted on CBS. In an era when mass entertainment was more often safe, bland, and instantly forgettable, Lear's generation gap comedy pitting a conservative white ethnic father against his counterculture-minded daughter and her know-it-all college boy husband ripped the scabs off old historical wounds and poured salt in fresh ones. It was unexpectedly a huge hit and paved the way for such similarly controversial spin-offs and spin-offs of spin-offs as Maud, The Jeffersons, and Good Times. I got to interview Norman Lear in the Central Park West apartment of his daughter. He was recently the subject of Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You, a documentary about his life and work that played theatrically earlier this year and recently aired on PBS's American Masters. Lear is a careful listener and a piercingly intelligent reader. There is no letting your guard down with Lear if you're a critic or an interviewer, even though he's as likable an interview subject as I've ever had the pleasure to meet. We talked about his television shows, his upbringing, the current state of American politics, and his longtime activism on behalf of progressive causes through the nonprofit People for the American Way. An edited version of our talk follows. When I, when I look at your career before All in the Family, I don't necessarily see somebody who would eventually end up creating All in the Family, not to mention all of the spin-offs of All in the Family and the spin-offs of the spin-offs of All in the Family, all of which were in a particular vein. They were very political, they were very connected to life, and they were very frank, even blunt at times. Mm-hmm. Can, can you fill in that gap for me? I mean, it just seemed like you, that sensibility sprang fully formed, but it must, have been, it must have been percolating behind the scenes while you were do- doing other kinds of work. I guess it was, but you know, something can be percolating and not necessarily know about it. Mm-hmm. Lots of things are percolating. Uh, I, I thought it was life as I as I had seen it growing up and 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 was living it. There wasn't anything we did that wasn't happening down the street, up the street, across the street. It was all the stuff of life. Uh, I can't think of a topic where we reached past everything. There were now half a dozen people around the table. Everybody was asked to pay a lot of attention to their family, their kids' problems, the the neighborhood, uh, and read maybe two newspapers. I picked the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Let's all read those papers. And draw from life. In a couple minutes. That's just stupid there, Jefferson. Besides, uh, getting elected, there's more to that than just being smart. There is, huh? Then how come we don't have a black president? I mean, some of our black people are just as dumb as Nixon. (laughs) You ain't got a black president, Jefferson, because God ain't ready for that yet. (laughs) Wait a second. What? That's right. God's got to try it out first by making a black pope, which he ain't done yet. (laughs) Or maybe that's because God ain't Catholic. (laughs) We know that line. Why do you think CBS 
let you make All in the Family in the first place? Well, they didn't let me make it without a struggle. Yeah. So uh, it was a new president, Robert Wood, and he was the kind of guy who wanted to, uh, and I say this with great appreciation, he wanted, some, he wanted something in comedy, because CBS was known at the time. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, Father Knows Best. There, there was a string of, uh, of uh, comedies that were very well known, CBS comedies. Kind of innocuous and he, and he for the most the, part. And innocuous, and he, he had seen, because it had been around for three years. You know, I made it originally for ABC, three years, 1968. Uh, when he saw it, he said, uh, that would be something that represented a new brand, uh, a new president. It would be my brand as an executive. And that's why he wanted it. But uh, as soon as he wanted it, he wanted lots of changes. What kind of changes? Well, I'll give you the one that was on the table <laughs> the day it went on the air, the evening it went on the air. The, all kinds of things about the language. Uh, it was the same script I had made for ABC because I wanted to do what I thought was 360 degrees of Archie. So it was a very thin plot. Let's just kill him talking about a lot of things. So he was at the, the show opened with the Gloria and Mike alone. They were making a uh, uh, a brunch, a surprise brunch for Archie and Edith who were in church on a Sunday morning. It was their anniversary. And uh, they finished. The balloons were up and the things were cooking. <coughs> Everything was ready. Archie and Edith weren't due back for another 40 minutes. Mike said, we've got the place alone. We don't have that that often. Let's go. And he drove her upstairs. They're no sooner upstairs when the front door opens, Archie didn't like this, these, uh, uh, minister or the sermon and left the church over early. So they came in, he's steaming about the sermon and so on. And they see the balloons and they're surprised and they hear them upstairs and start coming down the stairs and buttoning his, Mike is buttoning his jacket. And Archie looks at, seizes the moment and he says, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> that line had to come out. Wow. That line had to come out. Why? That line had to come out, but the situation they didn't have a problem with. It, it's as insane as that. I don't understand that at all. Well, the explanation, to the extent it is an explanation, was that uh, the line, 11 o'clock on a Sunday, he can only be talking about one act specifically. Hmm. And it draws attention to that act, and that audience will 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 imagine that act, what's going on up there, huh. what was supposed to go on up there. And I said, uh, I don't remember if they were married at the time. I think I, I don't even. I don't, yeah, they were married. They were married. They yeah. were married. They were married from the start. They were married from the start. Uh, I, so I said. Married people going up, going to make love. There's no, and they were went upstairs for that. But why wasn't the image there then? Yes. Well, it it it, it might have been there, but it wasn't a line calling attention to it. Well, they didn't sneak upstairs arm in arm to rearrange the sock drawer. Yes. Yeah. 
I, the word silly occurred to me. And I knew if I gave in to silly once, I'd be, you know, I'd have to every time. You used a phrase that jumped out at me, which was uh, draw attention to. The line would draw attention to what they were doing upstairs. Uh -huh. But isn't that, isn't that what all in the family did for the most part week after week was draw attention to things that might normally sure. not be discussed or, or could be ignored? Well, you couldn't, you, I, you're mean, very might, emphatic in the humor. It might, but it might be clearer, you know, let's, let's, let's play with, let's look at, let's talk about, let's deal with uh, what has already drawn your attention. Because we didn't do a new subject. These subjects were all there for the conversation. The country was falling apart, Betsy Ross got it all sold up. Abortion, take the one that was the biggest problem, you know, or later became the biggest problem. There was no problem at all. On Maud, you mean? Yes. We did the show and they expected to be buried in, in criticism and whatever. And there wasn't a state that seceded from the Union. <laughs> There's only one sensible way out of this. You don't have to have the baby. It's legal now. You know, she's right. It's legal in New York State. You better give that a thought. I have given it a thought. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. But that was a major deal, and I know there were a lot of behind-the-scenes discussions but, about but, spiking it. But right? the subject couldn't have been more available to everybody, or it couldn't have knocked in more doors and been, in, you know, there wasn't a house on any street where there was they, their family in some sense had known or been talked about or I mean it was not a new subject. The relationship between all in the family and Maud is an interesting one because you have as this main character Maud was often described as a, fe a female liberal Archie Bunker I don't feel that's, there's some truth to that but I don't think it's entirely accurate but what really jumps out at me about her character is the way that the show often skewers her having some hypocrisies like her liberal values are very they're very strongly held but the way that she expresses them is often hypocritical like in the way that she 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 speaks of her domestics as if they're her best friends and then they they they're not having any of that well hello you must be mrs evans i hope you didn't have any trouble finding us oh no ma'am i heard you all the way from the bus stop <laughs> did you feel any pressure or did you feel any need to um, poke more fun at liberals after no, having had such success with Archie I, Bunker. I thought you're, you're hitting on something that was very uh, important to me. In street language, he was a horseshit conservative. He didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. But he, those values were his. And she was the same as a liberal. She didn't know what the hell she was talking about. She's me. 
I don't. <laughs> She's you. Maude is you. Well, that, when I call myself a bleeding heart conservative, yeah. I care about the values that I express that are founding documents and the founding fathers and what we tell ourselves we are. Mm-hmm. They matter very much to me. How to get there? I have to rely on other people. I'm lost. I've written to I don't know four or five presidents. This last one, uh, I said, you know, you're a much younger man than I am, uh, but I need a father in the White House. I feel we all do. I do not know this world politically, and certainly not an international, in terms of being able to run it or think about running it or anything else. And uh, I know the problems that exist in our, our, our worldwide and national culture. I needed that, mm-hmm. and you could—that's what—that's your—that's your role. It's striking, too, that you have two very different portraits of, of African-Americans. You have one, they're upper-middle-class strivers who are living comfortably, and then uh, the family are good times, not at all. Yeah. Well, one begat the other, hmm. because I started with good times, and because the black press uh, in the second or third year uh, was writing about too bad there has to be one show about, you know, a guy has to find a third job in order to keep things together when, when we went in that direction on, on good times. And uh, and by then I had the Jeffersons living next door. He was in the uh, dry cleaning business. And it was easy to have, have him uh, move out, do well, do better. Move it on and, and that was uh, Jeanne Dubois' song and title. And move on up. Uh, so we did that. It seemed like a great idea, but it was motivated by a visit from, uh, I think it was the Black Panthers, and I think it was Carmichael, but I could be wrong. I think it was, who, who came to see me, and they were bitching about the same thing the press was writing about. So I had, you know, nudges in both directions. Mm-hmm. So this is a case where you you were criticized, fairly or not, for a particular show that you had on the air, and your response to it was to make another show that addressed those criticisms in some way. Well, it was going It was happening anyway because. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, the, the the word spinoff. I always thought of, uh, of uh, on every show, if you were lucky, there was an actor or a couple of actors who were in the bush leagues. They were incidentally successful. They were not among the, you know, the chief. So, Florida Evans on Moad, it was very clear there was a star. There was Esther Roll. Esther Roll. And her character was Florida. And uh, so I brought John Amos on Maud and introduced John Amos as her husband, picked her up one night or something. We had a few minutes of the couple. The show wasn't off the air before, in New York, before 
when, when Fred Silverman had seen it and called me and said, you know, there's a show in that couple. Hmm. And, uh, and of course, that's what we were thinking. That's why Amos was there. So with a couple of kids, we had a show. Hmm. Uh, and the Jeffersons, the same way. We had, uh, uh, what's her name? Living next door. And Michael, uh, Lionel rather, Michael Evans was the actor. Uh, Lionel was very successful and his mom was. And uh, I wrote in an, an uncle because I didn't have an actor for the father. We were looking at actors for the longest time and then somebody remembered and I had seen Pearly, Broadway show that had uh, Sherman Hemsley as soon as I remembered Sherman Hemsley, that was George Jefferson. Yeah, a volcanic performer. Yeah, and smaller than Archie, which was important to me, you know, little bantam cock of a guy who could <laughs> give it to Archie from the ground. Oh, where's everyone going? Upstairs to our apartment. The kids want Tom to hear the baby's heartbeat. <laughs> Daddy, he'll be so excited, he'll jump up and down. <laughs> Uh-oh, watch out for falling plaster. <laughs> hey, Ben, are you still here? Uh, yes, Mr. J, I need some expert advice. Oh. See, you're a man of action, someone who takes the bull by the horns. <laughs> He's an expert on bull, all right. <laughs> See, I've been working very hard this year, and I want to take my vacation a little early, but I'm afraid to ask my supervisor. I'm sure he'll get upset. Look, Benny, just go on there and tell him you want it. But what if he says no? Then tell him again. But he'll say no again. Then tell him again. I'm afraid I couldn't do that, Mr. J. Why not? Well, just standing here with you, I've already been turned down twice. Look, you've got to go after what you want in life, or life will pass you by and you'll wind up with nothing. People like a person that's straight to the point. Now just go out there and be aggressive. You're right. I'll be aggressive. That's it. Right. I'll show my boss what I'm made of. Right on. Yes, I'll stand up and demand my rights. See, there you go. Right. What if he still says no? You get a new job. <laughs> When you look back on that period of the 70s with your sitcoms, um, does it surprise you at all that you were able to have such success with shows that were so unconventional for their time? Yeah, the bigger surprise, or not surprise isn't the word, but pleasure, uh, is uh, I'm having today because uh, people in their 50s who remember laughing with their folks. I hear a lot of that. That's not happening now. And it may be because of the technology or maybe now, you know, over the overtime homes have had two and three television sets. Started off with one in the living room, uh, then one in the kids' bedroom, one in another kids' bedroom, <laughs> one in the kitchen, uh, and then all the new technology where kids are walking around with a you know a quarter of a pound of something that gives them the world on a tube right so it's uh, it, it's fractured but our shows those shows particularly uh, had the family watching together mm -hmm. for family reasons started with all in the family and uh, so what I hear a great deal is from people your age a little older than you uh, 
they were golden moments watching together as a family. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's meaningful. And, and then they extrapolate from that. This, this was very meaningful to me. Uh, there was an evening at the uh, Montalban Theater in, in Los Angeles uh, where a group of hip-hop people in the uh, academy came to me. They wanted to do an evening with Norman Lear at, live at the theater, cameras. Uh, and uh, the tagline or the subtext was, and it was on the marquee, what do a 90, at that time, 92-year-old Jew and the world of hip-hop have in common? <laughs> and uh, I got the biggest kick out of that. But Common was on the stage, Russell Simmons was on the stage, uh, what's his name, who does Blackish? Uh, Anthony Anderson? No. Kenny Barris? Kenny Barris was on the stage, Kenya Barris was on the stage, it was, and you know, a number of guys, and a couple of gals. This moment from Russell Simmons touched me. He said that he saw, uh, he saw uh, George Jefferson write a check. He was mm. 10, 11 years old. George Jefferson wrote a check. And the way he said, I never knew a black man could write a check. That had such an impact on me. This is another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, you, you talk about your work with such great pride. Almost any accomplished artist would, but there's something different about the way you talk. You talk about it as a mission. You're not shy about describing it that way. Um, you a mission. Yeah. I said I wanted to make a living. <laughs> well, that's not what's coming across from this conversation. You know, no, like no. I think that uh, that sounds self-deprecating to me. I, I thought in your review, you bring and you and and it's quite reasonable that you would. Yeah. You're an individual with your own set of sensibilities and so forth, and you bring. Well, of course you do. I mean, that's what we all do. You bring your uh, aesthetics or whatever to it. So you see mission. Mm -hmm. I can identify the mission as I've known them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love talking, but you know, but uh, I, I'll, go, I'll go anywhere because I'm not afraid to say I don't know or I can't think about it or whatever. Uh, so <laughs> this is very pleasant for me. Uh, I know I had a mission. I, 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 if you read the book, uh, what the hell was the expression? Uh, a good provider. Mm -hmm. My Yiddish tantas and uncles. A good provider. And my father was such a bad one. I wanted to be a good provider. So I remember very clearly. I remember very clearly when uh, I used to go to the airport a half hour or more earlier to take out flight insurance. Hmm. I remember the morning that I woke up, and I was flying a lot back and forth, California, New York, and, and working. Uh, I remember the morning I woke up and said, I don't need tips on for dollars more of insurance. And I thought, holy shit, that was, I'm a good provider. Hmm. <laughs> Those little things. Uh, the day I thought, uh, somebody's complaining about living in New York, I love New York. 
uh, and I thought, you know, where I'm living geographically doesn't really matter. I can be happy anywhere, so long as I knew I could get the hell out when I need to for a week or whatever. But I can leave when I knew that. Those are the points that I reached. I thought, oh, shit, I'm a good provider. This, this desire to be a good provider, and also the earlier thing that we were talking about, this idea of need a, needing a father. Uh, you don't have to be a therapist to see a connection there with yeah. what you went through as a kid. Do you see that as well? Do you feel like oh, you're, try yeah. you're trying to be the kind of guy that your dad wasn't? Yeah. I, you know, to the point where founding fathers had very special significance for me for the word fathers. The founding fathers of the United States. Of the founding, yeah. Because they were fathers, they were founding fathers. I mean, that the word father has been a major. A, when I, uh, my folks, I don't know, they never talked about sending me to college, and I don't think, I don't know that they could have. I have a grandson at Northwestern, where that's where I wanted to go. There was no chance in the world they could send him. Uh, so I entered a contest, American Legion oratorical contest, mm. and I won a uh, first prize for I think the county, uh, and it was a, a scholarship to Emerson College in Boston. That's how I went to, to college. But we all had to write about the Constitution, and I wrote about the Constitution. My title was The Constitution and Me. And I just wondered whether, as a Jewish kid who just learned about anti-Semitism some few years before that, uh, had a little more reason to, to feel about the Constitution the way I felt because he, she needed a little more protection than, uh, than, than others. That's how, that, that's what attracted me to black people too, you know, who needed far more than I needed. Mm -hmm. I remember when you founded People for the American Way. Yeah. And uh, I was, I think in middle school, I knew your name because I had seen it in the name of all of these shows that I watched. But that was one of the earliest examples I've seen of somebody turning show business success into into political clout to try to get something accomplished uh -huh. beyond the realm of the arts. And I also remember the reaction in the part of the country that I grew up in. I, I lived in Dallas, which is very was very conservative, slightly less so now, but yeah. very. Um, you were not liked. I mean, and conservatives really were not happy with. What you were doing? Can you tell, for the for the sake, particularly of younger listeners, can you tell me what this organization was about and how that reaction affected you? Mm -hmm. Well, what it was about was uh, I was very aware of the proliferation of TV evangelicals on television. So these, you know large congregations of people and uh, uh, with leaders they found uh, PTL, yeah, and ultimately the moral majority, uh, 
mm -hmm. Jimmy Swagger. There was a lot of them. There were a lot of them. And uh, they started to mix it and start, they began mixing politics and religion. Mm -hmm. Well, as a kid devoted to the Constitution, you don't mix politics and religion. That's anathema to any civil libertarian. Anyway, uh, so I didn't start, I didn't seek to start an organization. What I did was what I do. I did a, a 30, uh, a, a, not a 30, it was a minute, a minute long PSA. Mm -hmm. And I had a guy in, uh, uh, I just saw it a few weeks ago again, uh, a, a factory worker in a, a hard hat on a piece of factory equipment, camera just pushed in as he talked. And he was saying, I read a problem, he said, I, my wife and kids and I sit around, we talk politics all the time at dinner, and, uh, and we fight. You know, we got, now we got these ministers uh, on radio and television and in the mail telling us or suggesting we're good Christians or bad Christians depending on our political point of view. I know my wife's a better Christian than I am. Mm. And my kids, I'm sure, or I think also. But I happen to agree with these guys, the ministers and so forth. They don't. Anyway, he winds up saying, there's got to be something wrong when anybody shows you, even a minister, that you're a good or a bad Christian depending on your political point of view. Mm. That's not the American way. I took it to Father Hesburgh. I knew Father Hesburgh. Went to Notre Dame, showed it to him. I'll never forget the whole incident. Didn't have a television, so I had to go out and get one and bring it back. Because he didn't have a TV? He didn't have a TV. We were in his offices, and, you know, I did, he certainly didn't have a TV there. Anyway, uh, I, but I'll never forget his saying, uh, you're going to find Mainline Church. I'm, he wanted to give me a number and did. Mainline Church leaders to visit. Uh, he said, you're going to find Mainline Church leaders who will agree with you about mixing politics and religion. He said, but they will also be concerned about something that may not concern you. And I said, what's that? He said, the way they torture scripture. Hmm. I, you don't forget when a guy like him tells you they're torturing scripture. Anyway, I did visit a half a dozen of the people he, and uh, a couple of them said, in one office in particular, Guys said, you know, you could do a bunch of these, and they're good, and they're great. But PSAs, commercials. PSAs, and and I did. Jonathan Demme helped me with, do a half a dozen more. And um, but you should organize around it. An actual organization. Yeah. And uh, with with a staff and and, that, and an agenda and and and, and, he, oh, and he further said, I like what the fellow says at the end. It's not the American way. Why don't you be people for the American? Way? I have a problem. I'm religious. We're a religious family, but that don't mean we see things the same way politically. Now here come certain preachers on radio and TV and in the mail telling us on a bunch of political issues that there's just one Christian position and implying if we don't agree, we're not good Christians. So my son is a bad Christian on two issues. My wife is a good Christian on those issues, but she's a bad Christian on two others. Lucky me, I'm 100% Christian because I agree with the preacher on all of it. Now, my problem is, I know my boy is as good a Christian as me. My wife, she's better. So maybe there's something wrong when people, even preachers, suggest that other people are good Christians or bad Christians 
depending on their political views. That's not the American way. When you look at the news today, when you look at where the country is today, what do you think? How do you feel about it? Do you feel good? Do you feel apprehensive? I, the, the thing that makes me feel best is when I think that Donald Trump is the equivalent of the American people, uh, the middle finger of the American right hand. <laughs> And with the kind of leadership they're getting everywhere, whether it's airbag companies, <laughs> pharmaceutical companies, I mean, all you read about is how corporate America is doing in uh, their uh, consumer basis. Mm -hmm. The destruction of the middle class. Yes, and the middle class, lower middle class. I spoke at the Bohemian Grove two summers ago, and my subject was Eisenhower's warning of, that he saw the possibility of a military industrial, and in his early first draft, it was a military industrial congressional complex. I remember this. That he was concerned about. And if that isn't what's choking us to death tonight, then my eyes are shut. I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. The name of the game in corporate America is a profit statement this quarter, larger than the last. When there isn't anybody in corporate America that doesn't grant that that's lunacy. Fucking lunacy. But it's what we live by. Hmm. And it takes place at the expense of all other values. So. We're living in a time when 1% uh, of the country owns what percentage of everything? I mean, some giant percentage of everything. 10% owns. 90% has nothing. Uh, this was in 1950s, reversed totally. 90% of the, of the country owned, 90% uh, of the people. Mm -hmm. owned most of the wealth and there were the rich uh, but their rich has another definition today mm. uh, religion has been used uh, by corporate interests by the heavy weight interests they because they own them mm -hmm. you know I think often about, uh, I thought, I think often about uh, the language of patriotism and religion. You know, the, the liberals have given, gave up some years ago, the Bible, the flag. Uh, I, did a, I did a show uh, uh, called I Love Liberty. Do you remember that show? No. It was a two-hour show on ABC. Uh, I didn't, it, People for the American Way was one year old, so this was 1982. The only way I got it on, I got uh, Lady Bird Johnson and Gerald Ford to co-chair. Hmm. I had Barry Goldwater and Jane Fonda on the same stage. I'm proud of this. I had, uh, what's his name? Uh, 
John Wayne had passed, but his family gave me some tape that I used of him talking about, I don't know, I don't think he specifically mentioned that their names, but he said the equivalent of James Bond and Barry Gold have every right to say what they have to say. That's America. And uh, it was a great show. It was in front of 20,000 people at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. If I were buried with that one piece of tape, it would be that piece of tape. It would be that piece of tape. It would be that piece of tape, because everything I cared, it said everything I feel about America. And uh, everything. Or hunk. This is where you've probably seen Robin Williams as the flag. Yes, I do remember this. The start yes. of that show. That was great. Yeah, there was footage from him in the documentary. Yeah. 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 Yes, it was from that show. When I became a television critic in the mid-1990s, there were not a whole lot of television shows that were following in your footsteps. There were television shows that seemed to have adopted certain liberties that you were able to take. The language could be harsher, there could be sexual innuendo, you could hear a toilet flushing and things like that. But the political and social dimension had mostly gone missing. And uh, I was concerned that we weren't going to see sitcoms like that again, but I feel like now we are. Do you feel that way? And if so, do you? Are there any particular shows that you think are well, I think working in that vein? South Park is it's a giant. Never stops, you know. And they have been outrageously courageous in their comedy. I love those guys. Uh, I mean, this is the golden age. I can't keep up with the shows that people I respect are constantly saying, you're not watching The, the Night Of? Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not watching, but I'm, uh, you know, there are eight a week. Do you watch, have you ever watched Blackish or Fresh Off the Boat or yes, the Carmichael I show? I love, I love Kenya, we're, we're good friends, and, and Carmichael, I think Carmichael's, he wants to do everything and he's doing it. Uh, great young guy. Both Blackish and The Carmichael Show staged episodes in the last season that were very explicit tributes to the Norman Lear sitcom. Yeah, and, they talked about that. Yeah, and the, and the Blackish, the episode of Blackish about uh, police brutality, which included a soliloquy about the meaning of Barack Obama's inauguration to African Americans. Oh, yes. And uh, on the Carmichael show, well, they do it, uh, both these shows do versions of this every week, but the one I remember from the Carmichael show most vividly is uh, Separating the Artist from the Art, and it was in relation to Bill Cosby. But they also brought up Woody they, Allen they and other people. They dared to do Bill Cosby. I, 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 somewhere I have that separated to look at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you feel, you, you feel like you've had, do you, when you look at these, when you look at shows like that, do you do you say yes? Those are those are my children in a way. Well, they've told me they're, mm -hmm. they're my children. You know, I I did uh, John Stewart, uh, and uh, we we ran into each other verbally when I started to say, you know, my my wife and I go to bed with you every night. <laughs> I saw that episode. That was funny. And and he was saying, uh, I I grew up on you. Yeah. So I've heard the I grow up on you, you know, from all of these guys, and it's a thrill, it's a thrill. But who was it said we all walk in on the shoulders of others? Mm -hmm. 
it was different for me, but I walked in on the shoulders of a lot of people. What, what were, who, who, who owned some of those shoulders? Uh, Fred Allen was a big influence in my life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in all the Jack Bennies and, and, and so forth, out of radio, I listened to a lot of radio with my dad in his red leather chair. He, con he controlled the dial. Uh, and burlesque. Mm -hmm. My year at uh, Emerson College, the old Howard in in, uh, in uh, Scully Square, Scully Square doesn't exist anymore. Certainly, the old Howard is gone, but I never missed every week watching burlesque and burlesque comics and straight men. Mm -hmm. The comic and the straight men taught me a great deal. I often think of uh, the establishment being the straight man and the American people being the fools that are running into walls <laughs> as a result of the straight man's bullshit. <laughs> Is there any particular episode of any of your shows that you feel best represents the totality of what you tried to do in TV? All in the Family, Maud, The Jeffersons, Good Times, any of them? Well, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, that leaps to mind because uh, it's only in the last few years, in writing the book and looking at some episodes and thinking about it all. Mary Hartman was 100% about what it was always. It didn't pick up other themes. There were other themes, but in the very, in, in a startling way, it was about what is the media doing to the average American housewife? Yes. In the very first episode, she's standing with her can of wax, you know, and there's a waxy yellow buildup. Build I was going to mention a waxy yellow buildup, yeah. yes. And uh, sirens are going and Loretta Haggers comes in from next door and says that a family of five, their eight goats and six chickens have been slaughtered up, up the street. And she's, it can't be. The can says that there can be no waxy yellow buildup. These people sell millions of these. They, can, they, they have to be right because they wrote it. How do you like the floor? See that glow? What glow? Do, do you mean the waxy yellow buildup? What do you mean? That can't be a waxy yellow buildup. Read the can. Mary, you're looking at a waxy yellow buildup. No, I'm not. I am looking at a label that says that can't be. Mary, I am your sister. And I'm telling you, it's not a waxy buildup there. It's a waxy buildup there. You know, these people, I mean... They turn out about a million cans a week. I mean, who am I supposed to listen to, you? Waxy yellow buildup. It is a little yellow, isn't it? It certainly is. Anyway, that's not what's really bothering you, is it? Catherine, I wonder what all the sirens are. You think someone got murdered on the next block. It's Tom. Come on, Mary. How are things between you and Tom? They're fine. It's 
four sirens. But you never mind the sirens. Tell me what about your marriage? And uh, next to the, you know, toward the end of the show, she's on the David Susskind show. And she goes crazy. Yeah. They're asking her personal questions or something. By the way, I think it's one of the best pieces of acting ever. It was done in a take. The entire frigging half hour was one take. She was just brilliant. I didn't know that that was a essentially a film piece of theater. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No audience, but absolutely. Mm. And, uh, and then she went... <laughs> She winds up in an institution, and she's sitting in the nightgown in this institution. It's clear from the faces and the troubles everybody else has on their face where she is. And she's looking at a television set, and a nurse, <clears throat> somebody tinkers with the set, they're doing something. And, uh, and she says, Wait a minute, what's happening? What's she says to a nurse, Are they are they doing what I think they're doing? Yes, Mary, you remember? Yeah. And she says, I cannot believe it that I now all these faces are crowding around after all these years that I, Mary Hartman, am finally a member of a Nielsen family. <laughs> Fade out. That's that from the beginning. Waxy Ella moved up to Nielsen. That's a show that uh, th that's a show that um, I reappreciated recently. I went back and watched much of it, and uh, it's not the first show that springs to mind when people mention a Norman Lear show. Yeah, right. and it stands out from a lot of the other ones that you're known for because it's a w it's aware of itself as a television show, and it's aware of the things that you were just talking about the way that. Uh, consumer messages, capitalism, condition, uh -huh. the way that Americans see themselves. It's it's almost a piece of experimental theater, and you were doing it five days five days a week. It was like a real actual daytime soap opera. Five days a week. Yeah, yeah. And Fernwood tonight as well. This is an a this is an aspect of what you do that uh, is not as remarked upon as maybe it should be. This this te television that's aware of itself as television, not just to be cute. Yeah. Oh God, I love that show and those two men. What is your writing? Do you have a, what is your writing process? How do you physically write? Do you write in longhand? Do you type on a computer? Do you use a typewriter? No, I talk into a dictating machine. Really? Yeah. The dialogue and the directions, everything. Everything. Hmm. I had uh, I had uh, writer's block a great great many years ago, and I went into therapy. And uh, and the doctor one day said, uh, how, how do you write? I told him, I type poorly. Like this way, I do this, but it's this way. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, you got 40 people in a room, one small door, and somebody yells fire. Everybody runs to the door. Everybody doesn't get out. Uh, Think about your the thoughts in your head, your ideas the same way. He said, if you dictate, you're going to let everybody out. Hmm. You can sort them later. Tall, thin, you know, black, white. Uh, 
but let your ideas out. The best way to do that is to dictate. Don't have it. Uh, re- don't have it transcribed till you're finished. Mm. And that's the way I did. It happened at the time I did uh, Divorce American Son. Yes. And I wrote. I dictated that entire screenplay before I. Uh, this is the opposite of how writing is taught in school, though. They make you decide on your topic sentence, uh-huh. and they and you and you outline. Oh yeah, and all of that. that. Yeah. Topic sentence. That never worked for you, though. It never worked for me. I w- because I would have to, f- if I was writing the pa- I couldn't leave the page until it was. I thought it was really good. Yeah. And so it, it stopped me. If, if that's why he told me to dictate, so you're not looking at the words. Hmm. Don't look at the words, and don't look at them until uh, don't have them uh, transcribed until you're ready. Hmm. Let all of it out. How do you edit? What sort of the rewriting is easier than the writing? You know, somebody once said, "Nothing is written that's rewritten," hmm. and. Uh, that's, that's absolutely right for me. But the second and third drafts come a lot easier than the first one. Mm-hmm. Do you feel 94? I feel the peer of whoever I'm talking to. If I were, if you were sitting here and you were 12 years old and we were having a conversation, I would, I know quite clearly my age. Yeah. But I, I would be a 12 year old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a man is whatever room he's in, and I guess, and I guess whoever he's talking to. Well, that's the same thing I'm saying. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the fact of my life is, it took me every fucking second of my life, but every second, to get to this moment. There's nothing that you have done in the course of your life that hasn't led to this moment. (laughs) When you think of that that way, isn't the moment important? That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments to tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening.